From New York, this is Democracy Now! Estamos reclamando nuestros derechos. We are demanding our rights. That rotten coup Congress let them get away with the genocidal Dina Boluarte. They do not represent us. They kill our brothers and sisters. At least 17 people were killed Monday in Peru when security forces opened fire on protesters opposed to the recent oust or an arrest of Peru's leftist president, Pedro Castillo. Over 40 protesters have been killed over the past month. We go to southern Peru for the latest. Then over 7,000 nurses at two hospitals in New York have entered the third day of a strike. Nurses don't want to strike. We would rather be inside, taking care of our patients right. safely in a safe manner, not the condition they have been working for the past five, ten years. Enough is enough, Sinai. Enough is enough. We'll speak to a striking nurse and a journalist who's documented how hospital CEOs are boosting their own pay by millions of dollars while slashing charity care. And crypto bros want your 401k? What's that all about? All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Iran has sentenced three more people to death in connection with nationwide protests that have been ongoing since the September death of Masa Amini, while in custody of Iran's so-called morality police. There have been four known executions linked to protests so far. On Tuesday, the United Nations slammed the executions as state-sanctioned killings. Criminal proceedings and the death penalty are being weaponized by the Iranian government to punish individuals participating in protests and to strike fear into the population to stamp out dissent in violation of international human rights law. Four individuals engaged in the recent demonstrations have been executed over the past month following expedited trials that have not met minimum guarantees of fair trial and due process required by international human rights law. This week, protesters gathered in front of a prison in the Iranian city of Karaj, where some death row prisoners are being held. The mother of 22-year-old Mohammed Gobadlo, who has been sentenced to death, is pleading for help to prevent the killing of her son, whom she says has a history of mental illness. The court has fired his lawyers. They don't allow his lawyers to enter the courts. They are treating my child unfairly. They have interrogated him without an attorney present. And in that very first session of the court, they have sentenced him to death. Is this Islamic justice? In what court do they issue an execution sentence in the first session? And they want to execute the sentence equally quickly? Please, please help and support us. Meanwhile, Iranian courts have sentenced professional soccer player Amir Nasser Azadani to 26 years in prison, and activist Faiza Hashemi, daughter of, of the former Iranian president Akbar Hashemi Rafsanjani, to five years, though her lawyer says the verdict is not final. In Ukraine, heavy battles continue around the eastern salt mining town of Solodar, close to Bakhmut, where intense fighting is also raging. Ukraine's military denied the claim by Russia's mercenary Wagner Group that it took control of the town of Solodar, calling it a complicated situation. This comes as Russian strikes hit the eastern city of Kharkiv shortly after a surprise visit by the German and Ukrainian foreign ministers. Germany's Annalena Baerbach 
Baumbach pledge further armed support to Ukraine, though did not say whether this would include the Leopard 2 tanks sought by Kyiv. Baerbach also committed to helping with Ukraine's bid to join the European Union. Meanwhile, the U.S. is increasing its military assistance with a plan to train Ukrainian forces to use the Patriot air defense system at Fort Sill, starting as early as next week. The United Nations says almost 14 million people in Ukraine have been displaced since Russia invaded 11 months ago. Nearly 8 million of those fled the country. Six million have been internally displaced. In Germany, police have started violently evicting climate activists in the western village of Lutzerath. Hundreds of activists have been occupying the deserted town for months to prevent the area from being mined for lignite, a highly polluting type of coal. Germany has increasingly turned to coal, blaming the loss of Russian gas and oil following its invasion of Ukraine. Protesters say they're prepared to risk their lives and are calling for activists from around Germany and the world to join their resistance. Yes, we believe that we can hold out for several weeks, six weeks. We also believe that if there are a lot of us in the council and around the council, and also in all the cities where there are a lot of demos and actions announced, that we can still change this. So if enough people say, hey, this can't be happening, that in 2023 we're going to destroy another village for lignite, we can still prevent it. In Honduras, human rights and environmental leaders are demanding justice for two water defenders who were shot dead by unknown gunmen over the weekend in the village of Guapinol. Ali Dominguez and Jairo Bonilla were members of a community committee that opposed a mining project threatening sacred rivers and other natural resources in the region. Brazilian authorities have ordered the arrest of two government security officials in connection with Sunday's assault on Brazil's Congress, Supreme Court and presidential palace by supporters of former far-right President Jair Bolsonaro. One of the top officials is Anderson Torres, who is chief of security in Brasilia. Authorities have also asked a federal court to freeze Bolsonaro's assets while they continue to investigate the attack. Bolsonaro fled to Orlando Florida ahead of the inauguration of President Luis Inácio Lula da Silva. Over 1,500 of his supporters have been arrested for their involvement in the riots. Colombian Vice President Francia Marquez Mina said Tuesday her security personnel found and destroyed a 15-pound explosive device hidden in the road leading to her family's home in the town of Yolambo. Marquez Mina wrote on Twitter, quote, this was another attempt on my life. However, we will not stop working day after day until we achieve the peace Colombia dreams of and deserves. We won't give up until every territory lives in true harmony, she said. Marquez Mina is the first Afro-Colombian woman elected as vice president of Colombia and an environmentalist who survived another assassination attempt in 2019. She's also been the target of racist attacks and death threats. Back in the United States, the Republican-majority House on Tuesday approved the creation of the Weaponization of the Federal Government Select Subcommittee to investigate what they say is the targeting of conservatives and includes probing government investigations into former President Trump and the January 6th Capitol attack. Democrats and ethics groups condemned the committee, which will be led by far-right Congress member Jim Jordan, with some dubbing it the Insurrection Protection Committee. 
In California, progressive Congressmember Katie Porter has announced her bid for the U.S. Senate in 2024, as many expect 89-year-old Dianne Feinstein to retire at the end of her current term after serving over three decades. A former student of Elizabeth Warren at Harvard Law School, Congressmember Porter has represented Orange County in the House since 2018 and is well known for her pointed no-nonsense questionings in the House Oversight Committee. Other high-profile California Democrats who could run for the the Senate seat include Congressmembers Adam Schiff, Barbara Lee, and Ro Khanna. In other 2024 news, billboards urging President Biden not to seek re-election appeared in front of the White House and Capitol this week. The group behind the Don't Run Joe campaign, Roots Action, also recently aired a TV ad with the same message. Roots Action said polls show a majority of Americans do not want Biden to keep representing the Democratic Party and that, quote, an open Democratic primary could chart a bolder, more popular future for the party, unquote. A New York judge sentenced former Trump Organization CFO Alan Weiselberg to five months at the Rikers Island jail complex over the company's tax fraud scheme. Weiselberg pleaded guilty to 15 felonies in August. He's left the Trump Organization, but still received his $500,000 annual bonus and an undisclosed severance. He could actually serve far less than the five months in jail. In medical news, the FDA has fast-tracked the approval of a new drug that appears to slow down Alzheimer's disease in its early stages. Scientists say lecanemab, marketed as lecembi, is an exciting development in treating the neurodegenerative disorder, which affects around 6 million people in the United States. Thus far, we've had no treatments that slowed down or uh, prevented the progression of Alzheimer's disease. What we've had is symptomatic drugs that they help with some of the clinical symptoms of Alzheimer's disease, but they do nothing to slow down the basic disease progression, the underlying pathology. But it's not clear how many people the intravenous treatment will help as it comes in at a yearly cost of $26,500, and Medicare will only cover the cost if patients are enrolled in a clinical trial. It's possible Lekanumab, which is made by Biogen, will be fully covered once it receives full FDA approval. The governor of the U.S. Virgin Islands, Albert Bryan, is denying claims he recently fired the territory's attorney general, Denise George, because of her investigations into Jeffrey Epstein, who owned two private islands in the Virgin Islands. Denise George's firing came days after she filed a lawsuit against J.P. Morgan Chase for the bank's role in financing the late Epstein's human trafficking empire in the U.S. Virgin Islands and elsewhere. George recently secured a $105 million settlement from the estate of Jeffrey Epstein, who died in 2019 of an apparent suicide in a federal jail in New York. Three environmental groups are suing French company Danone for failing to reduce its plastic footprint. The yogurt and bottled water maker was recently found to be one of the worst plastic polluters, along with Coca-Cola, PepsiCo and Nestle. The lawsuit is being filed under France's 2017 duty of vigilance law, which requires companies to track and reduce human rights and environmental violations. The company markets its products in the U.S. as Danone. 
Hundreds of flights across the United States were grounded this morning after the Federal Aviation Administration said it was dealing with a system failure. Over 2,500 flights in and out of the U.S. were delayed as of early this morning, and more than 90 flights were canceled. All airlines were ordered to pause domestic flights. And— in entertainment news, the Golden Globes were awarded Tuesday night. The night's MC, comedian Gerard Carmichael, kicked off the ceremony by going after racism in Hollywood. The Hollywood Foreign Press Association, which I, I won't say they were a racist organization, but they didn't have a single black member until George Floyd died. So do with that information what you will. He started off the evening by saying, I am here because I am black. Golden Globe winners included the documentary Argentina 1985, which won for best motion picture in a non-English language. The film is about Argentina's trial of the juntas, the civilian court that prosecuted Argentina's former military leaders for brutal crimes committed during the U.S.-backed right-wing military dictatorship from 1976 to 1983. The film is based in part on the story of Luis Moreno Ocampo, who prosecuted the Argentine generals and later became the first prosecutor of the International Criminal Court. Luis Moreno Ocampo spoke to Democracy Now! earlier this week. Basically, the impact of the junta trial will not just unveil the crimes committed by dictators, was transforming democracy. People feel democracy is my system, I will protect it. And that's why the film, Santiago Mitre film, is so important, because 40 years later, the new generations, the young kids, are learning about this through the movie. So as a prosecutor, I had to prevent future crimes. And Santiago Mitre is doing that 40 years later. Argentina 1985 is a feature film playing on Amazon Prime. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York with Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. When we come back, we go to Peru, where at least 17 people were killed Monday when security forces opened fire on protesters opposed to the recent ouster and arrest of Peru's leftist president, Pedro Castillo. Over 40 protesters have been killed over the past month. More in a minute.
Home is Where I Can Dance by the Lima-born musician Sofia Cortesis. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Mimi Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. Well, Peruvian authorities have declared an overnight curfew in parts of southern Peru as mass protests continue following the ouster and jailing of leftist President Pedro Castillo. At least 17 people were killed Monday after Peruvian security forces opened fire at anti-government protesters in the city of Hulaica. At least two teenagers were among the dead. Three days of mourning are being held in the region. Some 40 people have died nationwide since mass protests erupted in Peru last month. Protesters are calling for Castillo to be released from prison and for his successor, Dina Boluarte, to resign as president. We are demanding our rights, that rotten coup Congress let them get away with the genocidal Dina Boluarte. They do not represent us. They kill our brothers and sisters. Protesters have set up massive roadblocks in southern Peru, calling for the resignation of the interim president, who had been vice president, Dina Boluarte. This is a protester speaking near the Peruvian-Bolivian border. Right-wingers have ousted the government of our president, Pedro Castillo. The Peruvian Congress ousted him. The Peruvian people don't support Congress. We don't support newly appointed president, Dina Bolarte. And we want her immediate resignation, the closure of Congress, and a new constitution. On Tuesday, Peru's Prime Minister, Alberto Otarola, defended the use of force against protesters, accusing them of trying to take over an airport in Juliaca. Otarola also announced a curfew in the southern Puno region. Compulsory social immobilization in Puno for three days, from 8 p.m. to 4 a.m. To safeguard the life, integrity and freedom of all the citizens of Puno. Peru has been in state of crisis since December 7th, when the right-wing Peruvian Congress voted to remove President Castillo after he moved to temporarily dissolve the Peruvian Congress ahead of an impeachment vote. Castillo is a left-leaning former teacher and union leader from rural Peru who was president for less than a year and a half before his ouster. In 2021, he defeated Keiko Fujimori, the daughter of Peru's former dictator Alberto Fujimori. Protesters accused the Peruvian Congress of unfairly targeting Castillo ever since he defeated Fujimori. There are Two guests with us right now. Eduardo González Cueva is a Peruvian sociologist and human rights expert joining us from here in New York City. And in Peru, we're joined by the Bolivian-based journalist Ali Vargas. He's a co-founder of Casa Chu News. He's joining us from Desaguadero, Peru, near the Bolivian border. We welcome you both back to Democracy Now! Um, Ali Vargas, let's begin with you. Can you tell us what's happening there right now and give us the broader context Text of why this is all taking place. Thank you, Amy. And yeah, I'm here in Desaguadero, Peru, which is in the Puno region uh, in, in southern Peru, very close to the Bolivian border. And well, 
I, I arrived here yesterday and my intention was to go to Juliaca where the massacre took place on Monday. However, that is uh, pretty much impossible because there's so many roadblocks, essentially barricades erected by protesters all along uh, all of the roads in this region. That there can, it's, it's not possible to really uh, move about uh, at all in any way. And yeah, at every point there is a uh, huge numbers of protesters who have erected barricades, whether through metal sheets, uh, giant rocks, and have essentially paralyzed the southern region, the southern part of the country. There's also protest, there's also similar barricades erected in some Amazonian cities like Pucalpa and Ucayali, um, and also near the coast, uh, for example, Ica. And yeah, this, the, uh, the sense I got from speaking to people yesterday is that people are getting ready for the long haul. People are ready to take part in what is uh, a general strike uh, in in these areas for the long haul. I don't know how much you can see behind me, but there is actually everything's boarded up. Nothing is is open. Everyone is taking part in this general strike, and the demands of people are the resignation of the president, um, the immediate elections because the, the regime had said that they wanted to have elections in 2024. They said, no, they have to be now. People want a constituent assembly to draw up uh, a, a new constitution. And the, these demands are essentially completely unacceptable to, to the government. And the government, I think, have backed themselves into a corner, especially with the massacre we saw on Monday, but also the deaths before that as a total of uh, 46 deaths uh, since the government took power, they've only been in power about 40 days. Uh, so the the, the 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 level of human rights abuse they've committed means that they cannot necessarily, uh, you know, have a negotiated way out of power because they will face prosecution. They will f- face possible jail time. And so really their only options would be to either, if they were to resign, to, to, to leave the country or um, to, I think, which is more likely to dig their heels in and increase the repression. And in this southern region, they uh, imposed a curfew last night that wasn't observed here in uh, Desaguadero. There's actually really no state presence at the moment. Um, government workers have been withdrawn from these regions uh, by the central state. Uh, so there, there's actually no way of enforcing that. There's no police at all. They've they've withdrawn from these areas as well. So there's is incredibly tense situation, and protesters uh, give no sign of uh, backing down from their demands, which are essentially the the fall of the government. And Ali, I wanted to ask you uh, if you could talk about what's being portrayed as a divide between the countryside and the cities of of, uh, of Peru, to what degree is, is uh, are the protesters largely from the indigenous populations uh, of Peru, and how does uh, race and uh, and uh, how Castillo had been perceived previously by the elite uh, in Peru uh, involved in what's happening here? Absolutely, that divide is uh, the political divide is a, also a class and, and racial divide at the moment. And all of the, the protests are co- and, and the general strike is concentrated in, in southern Peru. And southern Peru is overwhelmingly uh, indigenous. This particular area here near the Bolivian border is predominantly Aymara. Uh, that's people's first language. Uh, but w- there's also the, the strike is very strong in places like Cusco, uh, where you know people are, uh, predominantly Quechua indigenous. And so the 
this is the the epicenter of of the movement, which is a predominantly indigenous region. And people don't feel represented in any way whatsoever by uh, the central state in Lima, um, and primarily because of the racism that comes out of the capital city. Uh, we've seen with the uh, this past few weeks with the protests, the government ministers, and also the media based in the capital city. They've talked in a, uh, you know, an incredibly discriminatory way about people here, calling them uh, the Indians, the savages, the terrorists, the ignorance. And there's even some people, um, certainly not a majority, but some people even say that we, we don't feel very Peruvian because we're told constantly that we're we're not equal citizens, that we are we're not Peruvians like the people in the capital city. So if we're not recognised as Peruvians, why should we remain part of Peru? And a lot of people don't feel any any identification or attachment with uh, with those in the capital city. And uh, you know, just uh, you know, on an anecdotal level, I I, li I used to live in in Lima a, a few years ago. And the way that people, a lot of people, especially middle class people in Lima, would talk about indigenous and the Peruvians um, was in a way that didn't recognize them as fellow citizens. They would talk about the, oh, the, the invaders or the, the immigrants, uh, talking about people, you know, calling people immigrants within their own country. So this is the, the context really behind this. And people here felt that Pedro Castillo um, was the first president really improving history that is like them, that represents them, that knows their issues and their struggles. And they didn't even let him uh, finish here one term. Within a year and a half, he was ousted by uh, the Congress in which a maj the majority are, are right-wing parties. A uh, majority of people are, are, not in, are not reflective of the country and not indigenous. Uh, as, as well as the police and the military, I think those, those three institutions really were who ousted Pedro Castillo. And now there's a new regime, a new government in power that no one voted for. And people feel, well, what was the point of us having a say if that say is not being respected by the people in Lima? If the, if all, if the government is just decided by people, by backroom deals in the capital city. So there's a, there's a huge amount of... Uh, of resentment about that, about the racial discrimination that comes from the capital city. Let's turn to hear from some of the protesters who were injured Monday when the Peruvian security forces opened fire on the anti-government protesters in the city of Juliaca, killing at least 17 people. I was holding my camera when a police officer asked me to kneel while pointing a gun at me. Then I heard a shot and I felt my foot blocked. Then I felt a cramp. I took four steps and I fell on the ground because I couldn't walk. He was walking around because his friend lives nearby. They went for a walk and, as far as we know, a bullet hit him. Where did it hit? In the abdomen. All the intestines are injured. Um, Eduardo Gonzalez Cueva, a Peruvian sociologist and human rights expert, I'd like to bring you into the conversation. Uh, could you uh, talk about your perspective of what's going on here and also talk about the, the reality that uh, the current interim president, Dina Boluarte, was a, an ally uh, of Pedro Castillo before uh, the, uh, uh, he was uh, ousted from office? Juan, thank you for having me and for your question. And the first thing that we need to understand is that the political system in Peru is extremely fragile. 
the political parties simply have very little representation, and they are mostly electoral vehicles for quite opportunistic actors. The formula that led Castillo to government at the beginning didn't even appear in the polls, and it uh, catapulted to the top because of the image of Castillo. Boluarte was a person that nobody really knew. She was just in the uh, presidential formula decided by the party bosses. And um, so to say that Boluarte was an ally meant simply that she was in the formula. But there was no connection between the, uh, let's say, some kind of party discipline or party identity. Castillo himself was invited by the party boss to be the candidate in the initial calculation that with his image they would get a few parliamentarians. So that is the, the context, the extreme weakness of the political system in Peru, the fact that this political system really does not represent the electors at all, and therefore that we are reduced to a very degraded form of um, representation. This is symbolic representation, whether the person who is in power uh, feels like me uh, rather than a representation of interests, a representation in uh, in the political arena. So, so this is the the source of the of the problem. On Monday, Peru's prime minister announced Dina Boluarte's government had banned former Bolivian president Evo Morales from entering Peruvian territory. This is what he said. The superintendency has decided to ban former Bolivian president Evo Morales from entering the country and that of various of his Bolivian supporters for directly violating this law, Article 48, which establishes that those people who threaten or disrupt internal order do not enter Peru. We are closely watching not only the attitude of Mr. Morales, but also of those who work with him in southern Peru, who, as all of you have been able to see in the last few months or days, have been very active in fueling the crisis. So that's Peru's current prime minister, Ali Vargas. You're right there on the border um, between Peru and Bolivia. Can you talk about the significance not only of banning Evo Morales, but what this means for what's happening in Bolivia as well and for all of Latin America? And uh, where is Castillo right now? Uh, he's jailed where? Near you? <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, uh, Pedro Castillo is in police custody in uh, Lima, in the capital city. He's being held there without charge. Um, he's given he, he was given 18 months of preventive detention. Um, but yeah, in terms of Evo Morales, I think this is really about the government looking for a scapegoat and looking for a way to explain away uh, social protests. I think there's something that a lot of governments around the world will do in the face of you know, a population that is on the streets saying, oh, this is foreign actors. This is a, a, a there's, there's some secretive puppet master pulling the strings. This isn't genuine social protest. And so they've chosen Evo Morales. And the reason they've chosen Evo Morales is because in southern Peru, there is a great deal of admiration for him. And just I mean, just yesterday I was speaking to one of the protesters. He said, we want a, a president like Evo Morales. 
And the, the first reason he gave was actually uh, around the nationalization of natural resources. He said, in Peru, for, natural, for a canister of natural gas, which people use for cooking and heating homes, etc., we pay 10 times more than in Bolivia for the same thing. Why? Because in Bolivia, natural gas is nationalized and the distribution is, is, is done by the state um, at, at fair prices, whereas in Peru, it's all privatized. Foreign companies um, you know, sell it back to the Peruvian people at sky high inflated prices. And, you know, we, 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 we look at what's going on in Bolivia with, with great admiration. And a lot of people in Southern Peru, because we're close to the border, you know, some people come to Bolivia for work, uh, to sell goods, etc., at, at different markets. And so they can see the kind of economic growth that Bolivia's had during the period of Evo Morales and now with President Luis Arce. And so there is, yeah, there, there, there certainly is, that level, that that sort of image of Bolivia, and the Peruvian government is very aware of that. So they're trying to uh, use that to blame Evo Morales for social protest. But people are actually very, very offended by that because it, it means that they're delegitimizing the re- the reason that people are coming onto the streets. Of course, it has nothing to do with Evo Morales. This has to do with Peruvian uh, domestic politics and the way that Peruvians are unhappy at the, the, the national government. And to say that they are being used by some, uh, you know, behind the scenes puppet master is to say that they don't have legitimate reasons to come out onto the streets. And so that has actually angered people more. That has uh, put the you know protesters even more entrenched in their positions, more determined to sort of stay in for the long haul. And so I think while this discourse would play to the government's middle class supporters in the capital city, um, and uh, you know the ideas they have about Bolivian and indigenous people, in terms of actually resolving the situation, uh, it's actually made it a lot worse and made the situation a lot more tense. Yeah, I'd like to ask Eduardo Gonzalez Cueva. Uh, Peru, the, the the modern history of Peru uh, uh, has been marked by uh, profound uh, class and racial struggles. Of course, decades ago, the guerrilla war of the Sendero Luminoso and then the Fujimori dictatorship. Uh, could you talk about the uh, the demands of the protesters now for a constituent assembly and a new constitution? What is what is the problem with the existing constitution uh, in Peru? Well, we have a problem that is very similar to other countries that experienced a transition to democracy. Think of Chile. Um, Chile and Peru were very similar in the sense that when we both achieved a transition to democracy, we kept the constitution that had been written by the dictatorship. And that created, of course, a number of political imbalances that had to be corrected at some point. In Chile, you saw how that ended. There was a demand for a constituent assembly. Regrettably, they were unable to pass a new constitution. In Peru, when Fujimori escaped the country in the year 2000, there was a movement towards an integral transition. That is why we had a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, trials on human rights abuses, reparations to victims. But at the same time, the constitution of Fujimori was kept untouched. And not only that, in link with that constitution, the economic model that was installed by Fujimori, the neoliberal model, was untouched, which meant that, uh, of course, Lima benefited from the resources that were extracted from the provinces. Lima benefited greatly uh, because of the uh, commodities boom that took place in the first two decades of this century, um, while the theory was that 
progress would trickle down to the provinces or to the middle and lower classes. So, so that is the original sin of Peruvian democracy, that there was a transition in 2000-2001 towards the ideals of democracy after the personalistic rule of Fujimori, but we kept the rules of the game that were designed by Fujimori and for Fujimori. And what do you see as a possible uh, solution to the current crisis? That do you uh, do you fear a direct uh, a return to dictatorship and with, with the military backing that uh, uh, that approach? Well, right now I am extremely pessimistic and I don't see many uh, ways forward. I, I agree very much uh, with what has been said in this program that the um, um, willingness of the population that is protesting is to hold on for the long haul. Uh, they are prepared, I think, uh, to demonstrate as much as they um, can. And, of course, the government is also pretty much um, in a trench and uh, is demonstrating that it's decided to exercise a maximum force against the demonstrators. So, uh, basically, what we are going to see in the next few months, I believe, is uh, a simmering crisis with these kinds of spasms of violence, depending on operations that the police launches against demonstrators. Um, and we will have to see whether the protests actually move from the current area where they are, which is basically the south, the areas that voted for Castillo, the areas that have a high rural and indigenous population, to Lima, to the capital. I think that the uh, government in Peru has this very cynical calculation that if the killings happen outside of Lima, if the killings happen in indigenous areas, they are not going to worry Lima and they are going to allow the government to function. That is, of course, not just profoundly immoral, it's ahistoric, and it's also economically suicidal because Peru lives from mining that uh, happens to be located mostly in the southern territories. So, uh, so that is what is going on. I think that we are going to see um, this simmering crisis, spasms of violence, and we will see whether the protests can actually have a foothold on Lima. Well, Eduardo Gonzalez Cueva, we want to thank you so much for being with us, Peruvian sociologist and human rights expert, and Ali Vargas, reporter with Calcetun News, joining us from the Bolivian-Peruvian border in southern Peru. Next up, we speak to a striking nurse and a journalist who's documented how hospital CEOs here in New York are boosting their own pay by millions while slashing charity care. And we'll look at crypto bros wanting your 401k, how uh, regulators are being asked to allow crypto into the retirement market. Stay with us.
Even What They Want by Jay Dilla. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Here in New York City, over 7,000 nurses are entering their third day of a strike at two major hospital systems that account for more than a quarter of all hospital beds in the city. They began striking Monday after failing to reach a new contract agreement with Mount Sinai Hospital and Montefiore Medical Center over demands for higher wages and better staffing. The two systems have more than 1,200 nurse vacancies between them. This is New York State Nurses Association President Nancy Hagan speaking from the picket line Monday. Nurses don't want to strike. We would rather be inside, taking care of our patients safely in a safe manner, not the condition they have us working for the past five, ten years. Enough is enough, Sinai. Enough is enough. Some nurses have shared job postings that offer visiting non-union nurses $300 an hour to cross the picket line, more than five times the pay for a staff nurse. The nurses are also denouncing the inhumane treatment of patients, as some have been forced to receive medical care in hospital hallways due to overcrowding. Meanwhile, the New York State Nurses Association urged people to continue seeking the care they need, writing, quote, We appreciate solidarity from our patients, but going into the hospital to get the care you need is not crossing our strike line. We're out here so we can provide you better patient care. For more, we're joined by one of those nurses on strike, Sasha Winslow, high-risk labor delivery nurse at Montefiore Medical Center. Also with us, Matthew Cunningham Cook, researcher and writer for The Lever, whose new piece is headlined, As Nurses Strike, Hospital CEOs Pocket Millions. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Sasha, let's begin with you. Uh, describe the scene outside uh, Montefiore, is in the Bronx, and Mount Sinai, as in East Harlem, on the Upper East Side. Um, can you describe the scene there and what you're demanding? Um, the scene at Montefiore, where I am located, um, is full of nurses who are prideful and also excited that we have come to the strike um, because of the demands that are very important to us, which is staffing ratios and enforcement of those ratios with concrete um, language that makes sense and that those languages that are going to be put in um, will hopefully come with penalties to the hospitals. Um, I want to correct, as far as happiness goes, um, this is historic for many of the nurses at Monty, um, some who've been there for 40 years and have not experienced this before. This is a first for me. Um, it's crowded outside. It's cold. Um, but we are dedicated to our patients, and patient care is our priority. And Sasha, I'd, I'd like to ask you during the during the uh, the height of the of the pandemic, uh, nurses and other hospital workers were constantly being celebrated as essential workers, and hospitals got huge amounts of aid from the federal government. Uh, but uh, anybody who's been in a hospital, especially the hospital emergency room these days, knows that almost all of them are woefully uh, understaffed. Could you talk about how these staffing levels? affect your ability to deliver good care? So I was a nurse um, who cared for patients during COVID. Um, staffing issues have existed before COVID. Um, COVID only exposed to the public what we have experienced for years, um, and it just worsened. Um, when you are caring for patients, you want to 
provide them with the utmost dignity and respect and also being able to spend time with them. Patients have questions. Patients are um, scared. This is a very vulnerable time for them. And when you are understaffed, um, you are unable to provide that one-to-one care with the patient and um, addressing their needs um, or with their families, if they're present, addressing their concerns. Um, I see and know nurses who work in the emergency room who are caring for 1 to 15 to 20 patients. Um, That doesn't take into account the acuity of the patients, some who are ICU patients who are waiting um, to be transferred, um, med surge patients who are waiting for beds and sometimes are in the ER for 24 to 48 hours. This is a public health emergency across the nation because there's such a shortage and a need for nurses at the bedside, Uh, particularly in New York. um, We are, you know, a, a, a community that is filled with many people from around the world. Um, and, we need to be better, you know, better at communicating with our staff and communicating with our community that this is what's going on in the inside. And if we do not address this, um, we will continue to see nurses um, leaving the workforce because of unsafe staffing. And I wanted to ask you about uh, executive uh, compensation. Uh, Montefiore, like Mount Sinai and many of these hospitals, are supposedly nonprofit. Uh, they, they, ser- they are supposed to serve a public good, therefore they don't get taxed. But yet their executives uh, make enormous salaries. Could you talk about uh, your CEO, Dr. Philip Ozua? So, um, yes, um, Montefiore and Monsignor are private, not-for-profit hospitals. They are tax-exempt. Um, unfortunately, our CNOs, our VPs of operations, and our um, presidents of our hospitals make a lot of money in the millions, particularly Dr. Oza. Um, this is all um, within the New York Post, um, in Cranes, newspapers. Um, he made a profit in 2020. Um, of $13 million, 8 to $13 million. Um, when I did my last report um, back in 2018, he profited $13 million and was also offered a bonus of $9 million, um, an early retirement package. And as we can see, he never retired. So we see the disparity when it comes to um, wages and corporate greed, where we have our type our, you know, high level leaderships um, making tons of money and we and the workers, the nurses, the CNAs, our housekeepers, our lab technicians, our x-ray technicians are not um, making that type of money. So you do see the imbalance of power and money in our hospitals. Well, let's bring in Matthew Cunningham Cook, who really investigated this for the lever. His uh, piece says nurses strike hospital CEOs pocket millions. Can you talk about what you found in your investigation, Matthew? Yeah, I, I think that one of the things that was really jarring for me is it's it's very uncommon for hospitals to give their executives first class airfare and a chauffeur. Uh, and that's what Montefiore does uh, for at least one of its executives. They haven't told us which one. We assume it's Dr. O- Ozwa. Uh, but, um, yeah, it's uh, and over the past decade, uh 
eight and a half percent annualized uh, wage increases for the CEO of Montefiore. Meanwhile, the highest kind of amount that nurses are getting in, in contract negotiations in New York City these days is, is 7%. And that's just for one year. Uh, it'll go down to 6 and 5% for the following years. Um, uh, Mount Sinai's similar kind of disparities at work where uh, they've had the same CEO for the past decade, 12.5% uh, annualized raise it, raises over that that time. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's an and with this enormous growth in executive compensation, you see a, de a decrease in the amount of free or discounted care provided to patients. So uh, Montefiore's uh, charity care has gone down by 23 percent uh, in the decade uh, and Mount Sinai's has gone down by 50 percent uh, in the decade in terms of uh, uh, charity care spending as a, as a percentage of total hospital expenses. Um, I think what it underscores is, is how these hospital CEOs are so disconnected from the reality of what's happening on the ground. And despite the massive tax exemptions that they're granted, they're far more interested in lining their own pockets than in actually supporting the people who actually provide care. Uh, Executives, people in the C-suite don't actually do anything related to patient care. They're effectively parasites uh, off of the nurses and the dedicated healthcare workers uh, uh, in, in New York City and across the country. Uh, um, but their compensation uh, doesn't reflect that fact at all. Uh, and uh, it's a huge problem. And I think it's why you see uh, this, this nurses strike where you know, I, I used to work for a nurses union for many years. Nurses don't ever want to go on strike. Uh, it, it goes against the core of their being. Uh, and their the slogan is, you know, if nurses are on the outside, there's something wrong on the inside. Uh, and I, in this case, I think there's something very seriously wrong uh, about both Mount Sinai and Montefiore. And Matthew, I wanted to ask you about this again, about this nonprofit issue with these hospital chains, which is what they are. They often have huge reserves of money and uh, often have them invested uh, offshore <laughs> or, or have or have significant investments in uh, offshore in the Cayman Islands or other places which are obviously uh, tax havens. What have you found in your research on this? Yeah. So, yeah, Mount Sinai reports that they have $68 million in investments in uh, Central America and the Caribbean region. That almost always means the Cayman Islands or Bermuda uh, or other uh, or, or the British Virgin Islands or, or, or wherever uh, tend to be uh, uh, tax shelters. Montefiore has uh, almost $200 million invested in hedge funds and, and private equity. And again, you know, this is coming as 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 nurses are dealing with 20 patients in the ED. And it's very straightforward to staff hospitals more effectively. It is possible. When California implemented nurse-to-patient ratios in 2004, the hospitals had spent a five-year legal battle uh, trying to stop the legislation initially passed in 1999, and the hospitals had spent a five-year legal and political battle attempting to stop the ratios from being implemented saying that it would have been impossible for them to meet the ratios. Well, 
the ratios came in and then they were they were there because they raised nurse pay uh, and benefits to uh, be able to retain and attract qualified registered nurses to the bedside. Uh, so it's a very kind of straightforward issue of dollars and cents to adequately staff hospitals. And so when you have hundreds of millions of dollars in Montefiore's case and tens of millions of dollars in Mount Sinai's case invested in risky offshore entities, that is money that's coming directly away from patient care at the bedside. Can you also talk about this controversy over the New York governor, who just gave her state of the state address yesterday after her election, um, Kathy Hochul, wanting to fill the opening for chief judge of New York, um, uh, the New York State Court of Appeals, with Hector LaSalle, who's backed rulings that support these uh, corporations um, yeah. and uh, suing union leaders— yeah, yeah. I mean, what the backstory is, is about seven or eight years ago, uh, the communications workers and uh, Cablevision, which is owned by the Dolan family, uh, were locked in a huge dispute uh, over over a first contract for a group of about 200 workers. Uh, and Cablevision was so mad at the union for organizing their workers that they actually decided to sue uh, labor leaders. Uh, and Judge LaSalle was part of a panel that voted to allow that case to go forward, uh, which is dangerous for a host of reasons. But in particular, is this idea that you can take jurisdiction over labor relations away from the National Labor Relations Board, which is uh, a, a sacrosanct uh, a tenet of U.S. labor relations policy for the last 85 years. Uh, and so and it's something really that I think you would see more from a, a Rand Paul style judge uh, than from a Democratic judge in, in New York state or a Democratic aligned judge in New York state. So, yeah, it's very interesting that Governor Hochul is making this nomination at this time. I think it's also interesting that uh, she pushed the union and the hospitals to go to binding arbitration. Uh, typically, you know, if she had really wanted to prevent a strike, she could have stepped in herself and attempted to arbitrate the dispute or directed her health commissioner uh, to step in and arbitrate the dispute. Uh, but she didn't do that. Instead, she was advocating that the union and agree to a an arbitrator that could uh, implement a contract for five, six years uh, that doesn't meet the demands of nurses, uh, making it's, the problems substantially worse. So I think, again, what it underscores is, is unfortunately, Democratic leadership in New York state really seemed to be disconnected, uh, especially Governor Hochul seemed to be disconnected from uh, the reality of what workers are facing on the ground. Yeah, I wanted to ask uh, Sasha Winslow, uh, with, uh, what's the status of talks right now? Is the uh, you're in the, the second day of your strike? What are you asking the public uh, to do? Uh, uh, and uh, third, I'm sorry, third day of your strike. Uh, and uh, what are you asking the public to do? And uh, is the administration responding to any of your demands? Um, so in the third day of strike, um, our executive committee are. Um, continuing to have the talks with management. Um, the issue lies in the enforcement of staffing nurse ratio. Um, that is a huge issue that surprisingly um, management and our leaders in the hospital are given such um, 
backlash to. And this is something that's very important. This is something that impacts how we provide care and impacts our community. Um, the support that will be very helpful for our community is writing your letters. If you were a patient on Montefiore, how was your care? Um, was there any delay in care, any missed um, care that you experienced because of staffing issues? Um, we saw that work in California um, when the law was passed in 2004, that the community rallied with the nurses by their testimonies and by their letters of their experiences um, in the hospital. So this is important for us, and this is why we are striking. We are fighting for staff-to-nurse ratios and enforcement language that would hold hospitals accountable for not adhering to staffing ratios. That is needed to protect And finally, Matthew Cunningham-Cook, we have less than a minute, but you wrote a story on a somewhat um, uh, different subject called Crypto Bros Want Your 401k, in which you note that despite FTX's collapse, a lawsuit's trying to force regulators to allow crypto into the retirement market. Lay out what you found in this last minute. Yeah, what we found is that One of Sam Bankman-Fried's backers, this venture capital firm, Ribbit Capital, is also backing this company for for us all, a 401k services company that is suing uh, the Biden Labor Department for a guidance uh, that recommended against crypto investments in 401k case. And I think what, what the case really underscores is how the crypto market cannot survive without a massive influx of new cash from ordinary, unsophisticated investors like 401k holders. Uh, And yeah, the case is currently worming its way through federal courts, but I think uh, comes along with this push for pro-crypto regulation coming from folks like Senator Cynthia Lummis, uh, who are are really just trying to grease the wheels for for a large amount of ordinary Americans uh, to put their money into a highly risky, highly speculative asset with no underlying value. Well, we're going to link to your pieces um, at democracynow.org. Matthew Cunningham Cook writes for The Lever. We'll link to his piece, Hospital CEOs Pocket Millions, The Battle Over the Side Letter Scam, and Crypto Bros Want Your 401k. We also want to thank Sasha Winslow, striking high-risk labor delivery nurse at Montefiore Medical Center. That does it for our show. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Thanks so much for joining us.